Hi, I'm Michael Stittle. And I'm Nick Nanos. And welcome back to Trendline. Uh, Nick, so we're more than half a year into this pandemic. Uh, it looks like the fall and winter is going to be an endurance test for following public health guidelines. Is the pandemic still top of mind to Canadians or are we becoming, I guess, inured to it? Yeah, well, we're definitely not becoming desensitized, Michael, that's for sure. You know, when we look at the trend line, you know, we saw that at first initial spike of concern in the top national unprompted issue of concern. You can see the first spike in March, but, uh, you know, check out that trend line. You can see that concern uh, about coronavirus has now hit 35 percentage points uh, and uh, that it's basically as high as it was back in April. Go figure. Mm. So we've got, if you talk about a second wave, we've got a second wave when it comes to concern about the coronavirus right now, jobs at 14, health at 11, environment at eight. But the big news is that people worrying about the coronavirus and the pandemic is on the rise and that this is a noticeable spike in this new world where there are hot spots everywhere, it seems. Mm. From Moncton to Ottawa, and, uh, and it looks like uh, Canadians uh, have it on the radar in a big way. Right, even the uh, Atlantic bubble, uh, as you said, in, in Moncton, they're showing a, an increase in cases. So it's, it's you now say the, pretty much the mighty Atlantic bubble because the mighty. If yes. you talk to anyone from Atlantic Canada or the Maritimes, you know they have the the bubbles. They're actually proud of how they've been dealing with the pandemic, mm -hmm. and I think uh, for some they're a bit surprised that uh, right now I understand Moncton is one of the hot spots, and uh, and that uh, they're. The, uh, why don't we say joining the very sad party of mm. things that have to fight the pandemic in, a, in, uh, in an even more serious way. I mean, this, this past Thanksgiving weekend, there's a lot of conversations going on, families in Canada, you know, what do they do? Should they, should they have more than one household uh, meet? I mean, this was, a, you know, this was, a, we had kind of different guidelines depending on where you live, but this has been dragging on for so, so long now. Uh, you did a survey on how it's impacting Canadians' uh, mental health. And, and what did you find out from that? Well, you know, what we found is that a significant proportion of Canadians report that their mental health is getting weaker or somewhat weaker. It's about, uh, I think, 40% fall into those two categories, while only about 11% uh, say that their mental health is better. So by a margin of four to one, uh, people are more likely to say that their mental health is on the decline as a result of the pandemic. It speaks to, you know, the, the, the thing about this particular pandemic, and that's why Canadians are so transfixed on it, you know, there's, there's the physical health implications, there's the mental health implications, and there's also mm -hmm. the economic health implications. It's mm -hmm. kind of like, what else is left that could, that, that could uh, make it difficult for people to cope with? And, you know, I guess maybe that what else is the isolation? and the inability of people to see their family uh, in the same way as they did in the past. But it's definitely having a, a negative impact on Canadians' mental health. And uh, realistically, only one out of 10 Canadians say that their mental health is better today than it was before the pandemic. Hmm. People are much more likely to say that it's worse or much worse. Now, economically, in, in my neighborhood here in Toronto, I'm seeing a lot of restaurants struggling to stay afloat. Some of them haven't made it. Uh, small businesses across the country are really struggling. Uh, are, are we still seeing support for shutting things down if uh, cases surge or Canadians yeah. sort of backing away from that? It's kind of like people don't want the government to let up on fighting this pandemic. Mm. You know, in, uh, in the recent survey that we just did for CTV News, about 55, uh, 45% of uh, Canadians 
uh, outright support closing uh, non-essential businesses, not all business, mm -hmm. non-essential businesses, another 25 somewhat support, while only about 29% opposed or somewhat opposed. So uh, pretty, pretty comfortable majority. And, you know, think of it this way, Michael, you know, according to Statistics Canada, of people that were active in the workforce before the pandemic, four out of every 10 are on serve or receiving some type of support and are staying home. So mm -hmm. it shouldn't be a big surprise that uh, there's a significant proportion of Canadians that are kind of like, you know what, if we have a second round, if we have a flare up, if we need to fight the pandemic, it's okay uh, that uh, non-essential businesses uh, be closed. But you know, the, the killer here is the impact on the economy. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think, uh, you know, maybe, can we give a little piece of advice to politicians? Sure. Do that? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, th I, think, uh, I think what would be, you know, it's pretty clear the public health officials know what needs to be done to fight the pandemic. But, you know, I think part of that discussion has to include some economists and what it means for the economy. Mm -hmm. And maybe we shouldn't have politicians making decisions about the pandemic from an economic and health perspective. Maybe we should have uh, public health officials and economists work it out and what the trade-offs are. Mm. Uh, and then do, uh, if they could talk amongst themselves and maybe have a solution then to present that to politicians. But, you know, I think for a lot of Canadians, the big problem is uncertainty. It's like day by day, week by week, things, the rules change. And I yeah. think that's what makes it frustrating. So one week, there's some sort of hockey that boys and girls could play. And then another week, it's like, oh, they can't scrimmage. Uh, or this week they can't scrimmage or they're just doing drills. So it's that uncertainty that creates just another overlay of stress. Oh, we see, absolutely. We, we see uh, Ontario Premier Doug Ford kind of got into trouble with confused messaging before Thanksgiving weekend. I mean, he's clearly weighing public health uh, risks versus economic risks. And, uh, and, you know, it wasn't until recently that he basically said, please don't let households mix for Thanksgiving. Uh, but, but Nick, I want to move on to the federal government now. They are under tremendous pressure to do more for these small businesses. Um, and that seems to be the new focus of Prime Minister Justin Trudeau. Uh, so I just want to play a quick clip, though, because conservatives, uh, now that the House is back in action, want to bring up the WE scandal again. Uh, but Trudeau, of course, uh, wants to focus on uh, what the government is doing for COVID-19. So let's listen to Trudeau. We are entirely focused on the second wave of COVID-19. Uh, COVID um, we are uh, working to support Canadians, to support workers, to support families, to support small businesses uh, as we get through this second wave. Uh, we will continue to stay focused on what we need to do to support Canadians facing a very difficult time right now. The so there you go. Uh Nick, is, does it make sense for the Liberals to 100% focus on COVID-19? Well, for them it does, because, mm -hmm. you know, the thing is, is what our polling shows is that many times, whether this is fair or unfair, the Canadians judge governments based on what they see in the news. So that when the government, for example, in the past was focused on explaining the weak controversy and clarifying things, and the Prime Minister and his Chief of Staff were testifying before the House of Commons, for average Canadians, it looks like, hey, it looks like they're focused on defending an ethics uh, issue as opposed to focusing on the uh, on the pandemic. So mm -hmm. I can understand from a, a liberal perspective why they want to say that they are firmly focused on the pandemic. 
at the same time, I get it from a conservative perspective because mm-hmm. this vulnerability, you know, when you looked at, you know, we talked in previous podcasts on how the liberal numbers got hammered. Well, we derailed all the goodwill that the liberals built up over the course of the pandemic. And, uh, and I think what the, liberal, what the conservatives are at least hoping for is that they can feed the fire um, with, uh, with you know, more committee hearings and a focus on, uh, on the we controversy. Uh, because you know what are what are they going to what are the conservatives going to criticize the liberals for right? like helping Canadians through the pandemic, right? Like, yeah, maybe you shouldn't do that, right? Maybe you can say the deficit's too big, but you got to be careful when you tread in that. I think the conservatives see the we controversy as a clear, hard, sharp punch on just the Justin Trudeau brand and the liberal brand, which is why they're going to try to keep this alive. So. Uh... In our last episode, you you showed new ballot tracking numbers, and the Conservatives under new leader Aaron O'Toole had managed to tie the Liberals for the first time in a long time. I can't remember when that happened before. Um, where are they now? Yeah, exactly. You know, we look at these trajectories, and it's like, uh, are they still going up? Are they still going up? Are they going down? Or what's going on? Yeah. Uh, latest uh, week, latest weekly nanos tracking that we've just released has the Liberals at 35, Conservatives at 33. Uh, NDP are at around 15, Block 7, Green Party at 8 or thereabouts. Uh, so it's still a statistical tie, factoring the margin of error for the survey, because it's about plus or minus three percentage points, 19 times out of 20. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's not an absolute numerical tie. So we'll have to see. Uh, can we tell people to tune into future trend, trend line? Yes, podcasts? please. Please to, tune uh, in. To get your, uh, to get your hit on the, on the ballot tracking. But um, it's going to be interesting to see whether will it be a new trajectory or will it basically continue to be a coin toss on the national ballot numbers. But can I put a little, uh, can I, I, I can't draw. Can you draw an asterisk <laughs> on the screen? I'd like to we'll put, put it, we'll put it in post-production. Polster's <laughs> asterisk on the screen. Hmm. Even though, you know, when we model out this to see, so this is popular support. So you might think, hey, that's really close. When Nanos internally, we do this every week, does seat projections, we do this internally so that I can be smart in my analysis, hmm. is that even though the Liberals and the Conservatives are statistically tied, the Liberals win 24, count it, 2-4 more seats than the Conservatives uh-huh. because the Liberal support is much more efficient at converting into seats than the Conservative support where they've got massive advantages in Western Canada that they don't convert into number of seats. So, uh, so conservative viewers out there, you should be happy that you're competitive in terms of the uh, ballot numbers, but you gotta be thinking that conservative campaign machine has to be more efficient at spreading out those conservative votes in order to win more seats. So that's a little uh, pollsters asterisk. On Great. The- <laughs> Now, uh, the Prime Minister has a new opposition uh, rival in the House. Well, not technically in the House because she hasn't won a by-election, but uh, Annamie Paul was named uh, the new leader of the Green Party. Uh, She is the first uh, Black woman to be elected to lead a major political party. I say elected because in 2011, Vivian Barbeau led the uh, blocks as an interim leader. Um, I just want to play a clip for, for what her win means. So uh, what I bring is hope, hope to all the people that have not seen themselves represented in politics uh, to this point, hope that it's possible that we can have a more inclusive style of politics. And I'm very excited about that. So Nick, uh, what does this mean uh, for the dynamics in the House? Well, you know, I think it could be a potential game changer. 
um, you know, we, we have to remember that the, the Green Party is kind of, it's an interesting, I will call it political beast, mm. right? It's not a traditional party, doesn't have a lot of baggage. Uh, it, it benefits from a global brand, right? Where, you know, the Greens are now, uh, you know, a significant force in major democracies like Germany, where mm -hmm. they would probably be a coalition partner. Um, and, the, you know, even provincially, we're seeing, you know, Greens picking up seats in New Brunswick, uh, the Greens uh, winning seats in, uh, in BC provincially, they've won their, they won a seat in Ontario. So they've, uh, so they're, they're in a, a bit of an interesting space. And uh, I think she'll be intriguing for a lot of Canadians. And I think Justin Trudeau should, has to watch the Greens as kind of like a bit of a, why don't we call it a friendly, not a hostile, but a friendly protest vote. Right. Um, because, you know, our polling suggests, you know, we crunched, I crunched the numbers this morning, Michael, uh, when I look at those ballot numbers and about three out of every 10 committed liberal supporters would consider voting green. Uh, three out of 10. Three out of 10. Yeah, that, as we would say, that is not insignificant. No. Right? So <laughs> no. it's kind of like, so, and, you know, I think what, uh, what Justin Trudeau has to watch out is for younger liberal supporters. And, you know, the other thing that we learned in the last election, if you remember, there was a, a, a point in time when Green Party support kind of picked up and liberal mm -hmm. party, party support dropped. That coincidentally happened when Greta Thunberg was in Montreal and gave the prime minister a bit of a rough ride saying he hadn't done right. that. And millennial voters switched from the liberals to the greens. So uh, I, think the, I think the greens uh, are in an interesting space. A, a significant proportion of Canadians are open to voting for them. Liberals would consider voting for the green and they've got a new leader. Um, it's gonna be interesting to see how the new leader, what vision that they articulate for the green party. Um, but you know, this new leader is a very accomplished individual, Annemie Paul. Uh, she's an inspirational speaker. Mm -hmm. um, looks like she's looking at, at building the Green Coalition. And it'll be interesting to see whether she can take it to the next level. Because uh, I don't think anybody should dismiss the good work of Elizabeth May. You know, like, let's, let's, let's make, let's, for anyone, whether they love, hate, or indifferent related to the Greens, Elizabeth May put the Greens on the political agenda. She carried the standard for a number of years effectively. And, uh, and stepped down when she thought that uh, she could not take it any further. And uh, now we have this new leader. So let's, mm. let's, see, uh, let's see what happens. But I think the Liberals should be taking the Greens, uh, should be taking the Greens seriously because they could, be, uh, they could be a protest vote against the Liberals. Uh, and Nick, uh, as I said before, Paul does not have a seat in the House. Uh, she's waiting for a by-election, but she herself has said uh, she doesn't want any by-election race right now because of the pandemic and, and the inherent health risks for that. Uh, what, are, what are the risks, I suppose, for her for not having a seat in the House? Does, does it help or hurt her? Should we go like this? I, don't yeah. know. <laughs> I think we need more infographics. Uh, <laughs> more post-production. Uh, could go either way. Um, mm. Well, first of all, the by-elections are happening. York Center, uh, sorry, York and uh, Toronto Center, uh, mm. they are going to happen. Um, I think, you know, Toronto Center is a riding that she has run in the past. She didn't do that well in that Toronto Center, but she was, it might be a little unfair to say that she hadn't done well because she was effectively a parachute at the last minute into the riding when she right. ran this time. Um, that said, Toronto Center, boy, oh boy, that is a liberal stronghold. I think more than 25 years it's been in the red column. Uh, so winning that is going to be tough. That said, 
One interesting thing about that particular riding is that the University of Ryerson is there, 40,000 students. And we know from our polling that Greens tend to do a little better among students, millennials, younger uh, voters. They tend to do some of the ridings that they picked up, for example, the ridings in, uh, in New Brunswick, provincially, is in, uh, I think, the same riding that Mount Allison was in, where they were very good at mobilizing uh, students to vote for the Green Party. Yeah. So uh, I, think, uh, I think in Toronto Centre, the, the Greens can do respectively if they're organized and, you know, what they need a number of things to happen, first of all. They need to mobilize students to vote. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that they would need to do is to make Toronto Centre a by-election, uh, not a by-election, a referendum on the Liberal Party, right? Because the fact of the matter is, is that even if the Liberals lose Toronto Centre, they're still the government. So the Greens could go in, if they were smart, they'd say, send a message to Ottawa. If you're disappointed with how slow the Liberals have been on the environment or think they could have done more, send a message through your, not to sound like Spider-Man, your friendly neighborhood green candidate. <laughs> right. and, uh, and, to, uh, and to take advantage of that, where there might be progressive voters that might be disappointed with the Liberals on a number of issues, uh, know that the Liberals will not be defeated so they don't have to worry about the Conservatives coming in and saying, hey, why not vote green this time and, hmm. uh, and give them a vote. That said, Winning that by-election would be an unbelievably major accomplishment for any Green candidate, and I would say for any candidate to win that other than the Liberals. But I think, I think there is a chance if they, if they ran a good campaign on the ground that they could do respectively. Hmm. That's more uh, free advice from uh, the Trendline podcast out there. That's pretty good, Nick. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> uh, I want to go south of the border now, uh, where, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm seeing the headlines, the election's already over. Biden's up 12 points. Uh, is it What's done? It today? Has he won? <laughs> so what do you make of this, of, of, of these headlines and the polling there? Well, I think we have to be careful. What's clear, in the, what's clear in the polling that's out there in the public domain from the respectable pollsters, at least, is that the, the marginal advantage or the advantage that uh, Biden did enjoy is now widening, mm. um, you know, anywhere from 12 to 14 points, depending on which, uh, which piece of research that you look at. Um, I would watch out for the uh, I would watch out for the technical correction. You know, it's kind of like politics. Many times is like the stock market. You know, like a, a stock sometimes runs up because there's exuberance and momentum mm -hmm. in the stock, and then at some point, someone says, "I think that's a little overpriced." And uh, I think what the what the Democrats have to watch out for is that you know that twelve to fourteen point advantage um, drops a little bit. Uh, the good news is, is that it could drop a lot, like it could drop to five points and it could mm. still be a big win for the Democrats. But uh, it's going to be interesting to see what will Donald Trump do to try to reverse the trend? Because the, there's only so much more runway left in this U.S. election to turn things around. It usually takes 10, it usually takes maybe 10 days for a trend to reverse itself. So, you know, tick tock, Donald Trump, uh, yeah. you know, time's running out for you to reverse this trend that is, uh, that is currently favoring Biden. But if you're asking uh, for a bet, I would say that uh, Biden's still on track to win. He might, mm. he'll still have a comfortable win, but I'm not sure it will be the fantastical over the top 12 to 14 point advantage 
that we're currently seeing now in the polls. Wow. Uh, Nick, I think that's it for this episode. Do you, do you have a prediction or a takeaway? What, what do you have for us this, this episode? Well, you know, I think, the, uh, I think the one key takeaway right now, at least in Canada, is we have a new leader of the uh, opposition in Aaron O'Toole, the leader of the Conservative Party. We now have a new leader of the Green Party. Congratulations, Parliament. The table is now set with the key actors for the next federal election. <laughs> interesting. No, it's going to be interesting to see yeah. uh, how both Aaron O'Toole and Annemie Paul uh, decide to uh, lead their parties and mm-hmm. how they differentiate themselves. So I think it, I think it'll be the key takeaway is the actors for the next election are set. It's going to be interesting to see what they do in order to get political traction. All right. Uh, Nick, as always, thank you very much. It was fun. And uh, where can we find you? You can find me on Twitter at Nick, N-I-K, Nanos, or you can go to the website, www.nanos.co, or get for all those oodles of stats. And I'm also on Twitter at Michael Stittle, and you can find more information on what Nick and I have talked about this episode also at ctvnews.ca. Thanks, as always, for listening and watching.